if you got your Bibles, open to 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and also 1 Kings chapter 20. 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Kings chapter 20. And also want to give a shout out to our dear friend Arvia. Arvia had service this week. Maybe you know her, a true apostle in the community. And uh, Arvia, just think the world of you. Know that we're praying for you and hope you get well soon. All right? Um, so here's the deal. I told you these were kind of some later round passages that we're getting into. This is one I can almost guarantee you've never heard preached before uh, because it's weird. There's some weird stuff attached to it. Um, and it focuses on one of the most fun topics to cover in church, sin. All right? And so here's the deal. We do not shy away from it. And like we talked about last week, uh, it says that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and training in righteousness. Today is a training in righteousness day. I want to encourage you to take notes and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you. It may be that some of you uh, have something that the Lord is trying to catch you on so that it doesn't turn into something bigger uh, that requires some heavy consequences. That's what happens to Ahab in the passage that we're going uh, to study today. All right. Um, again, our study starts with this question. Have you ever thought to yourself, I should have known better? All right. Again, have you ever thought to yourself, I should have known better? Now, just for the record, you got to know the difference between I should should have known better, and I wish I had known better, okay? I wish I had known better is I wish I had known Bitcoin was going to blow up beforehand, all right? Again, that's something no one could have foreseen, and yet here we are uh, in this circumstance. The GameStop deal, right? There's a point where you go, you know, I wish I had known better on that so that I could have made a big purchase. Autumn and I watched a documentary. We're documentary people, and we watched a documentary called The Last Blockbuster. Uh, some of you may have heard it. It's the, uh, uh, the language, and it's, it's got some bad language. There's some different stars in it, but it's a really, really fun documentary, uh, Last Blockbuster. And uh, the scene that really caught me in this documentary, I didn't know this. So there were more than 9,000 blockbusters nationwide, and uh, there now is only one left. Can anybody tell me where the last blockbuster is located? Oregon, I knew you'd get it, Megan. I knew you'd get it. Bend, Oregon is where the last blockbuster is. And so the documentary is on how in the world did one blockbuster survive? And it's because it's in Oregon. That's why. There were three others. The final four, the other three were in Alaska. And so uh, Bend, Oregon's the last one to make it through. All that to say, the big moment that caught me in the documentary is they said that the most important moment in Blockbuster's potential would-be history happened when Netflix approached Blockbuster about buying them out for $50 million. Now, can you imagine? Netflix is worth hundreds of billions at this point, and they could have been bought out for $50 million by Blockbuster, and then we might be blockbustering something instead of Netflixing something. I mean, isn't that crazy, the way that that could have come together? All that to say, that's I wish I had known better. If you'd known the future, if you'd known how things were going to go, uh, you wish you had known better. I should have known better is when you know the truth, you know what scripture says about something and how it will play out. You know how something is going to go, and yet you choose to do it your own way anyway. In fact, Solomon calls that folly. Folly in scripture means an avoidable mistake, something where you should know better. There is uh, insight in scripture. There's insight in life to show you that this is a bad decision, and yet you jump headlong into it anyway. Again, I should have known better. Uh, I had one of those moments. This will be the, the funniest story 
that you hear today. There's some heavy stuff we're going to go through today. Uh, but I'll tell you a time when I should have known better. It happened in the first Christmas that Autumn and I ever spent together. Um, I should have known better happened because there was a movie that came out that year that shaped a nation. All right. And that movie was Ben Stiller's Dodgeball. All right. That came out that year. You see Ben Stiller's Dodgeball. Okay, uh, anyway, Dodgeball, the movie came out. And so that year, Autumn and I are spending our first major holiday together. It's Christmas Eve. We're spending our first major holiday together. And we're at my parents' house. It's the first time she's ever been away from her family on a holiday. And uh, we're getting married in less than a month. We got married on January 15th. So less than a month before the wedding. And uh, I had bought Dodgeball for my little brother. He was a senior in high school that year. I bought that for him as his Christmas present. And I can't remember what he had gotten for me. Well, anyway, uh, we go up there. Uh, for the Christmas and uh, for, the, for the Christmas experience. And my mom has just planned everything to the nines. I mean, she wants to make sure that it's a great experience for Autumn, first time with our family. And we were a family that opened presents together on Christmas morning, okay? So Christmas Eve, we got this together. Well, anyway, I come in and my brother looks at me and he goes, dude, we should go rent Dodgeball tonight and watch it. And I go, hey, spoiler alert, I got it as your Christmas present and I've got it in the car. And he goes, no way, you got it in the car? And then I say to him, you know, if you give me my present early, I'll just give you your present early. We can unwrap it and do this. And he goes, oh, that'd be awesome. He said, I didn't even wrap your present yet. He said, that'd be great. I should have known better, all right, than to test the tradition of Christmas in the Randall's household. And so what ended up happening is something that haunts me still to this day. We're sitting in the living room, and then all of a sudden, I hand the present over to my brother, and the second that he rips the present, my sophomore in high school little sister, Haley, runs in and she goes, we're opening presents? And before anything can happen, she starts tearing open her presents that are supposed to be opened on Christmas morning. And I'm telling you, I'm like, this is not good. And Autumn's over there going, is this how your family does things? I don't know. And then like a movie, my mom has just gone to the Olive Garden to get the Christmas Eve dinner. And, and she's got the bags in her hands and she walks in with the plastic bags and it was like a movie. She sees us opening the presents. She drops the bags. And then all of a sudden she points at me and goes, you ruined Christmas. I mean, that is a real story that actually happened. In fact, every year my brother and sister have totally sold me out and they say they're probably watching this. They always say that none of this story is true and I'm like, you guys are liars. All right, that is what happened. And they always look at me and they're like, hey, brother, do you remember that year you ruined Christmas? And I have to carry that shame from now forward. Now listen, I should have known better. I should have known not to give dodgeball early, but we should waited and watched it the next day. But again, I did it, and now I have to live with the consequences because of it. It's one thing when it's dodgeball and it's Christmas. It's another thing when it is your life and you've given yourselves over to be in the hands of Almighty God to prove that Scripture is true uh, in an area that could have been avoided. Look with me, if you will, at 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to start in verses 18 through 20. 1 Timothy chapter 1, as the lead-in for this today, 
Paul says, Timothy, my son. Underline and highlight Timothy, my son. He's offering fatherly advice, a spiritual fatherly advice here. He says, Timothy, my son. Again, he's putting the full weight of his relationship with Timothy behind what he's about to say. He says, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by following them, you may fight the good fight. He's trying to tell Timothy, I'm going to tell you this stuff. I'm going to talk about sin. I'm going to talk about what church should look like. I'm going to talk about, again, uh, what we know uh, to be true from Scripture and our relationship with Christ. He says, I'm going to say this to you, but it's, it's not to limit you. It's so that you will fight the good fight. Look at what he says in verse 19. Holding on to the faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Underline, have shipwrecked their faith. It's one of the only places in Scripture that word shipwrecked is used. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to, be, handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Now stop right there for just a minute. That last part can end up being a little controversial because some of you are like, ooh, I can hand somebody over to the devil. No, the idea here is more figurative. What he's saying is not that one of us can say, I'm going to give such and such to the devil because I don't like them, all right? It's not a voodoo doll verse. The picture here is him saying, if you choose to live against what Scripture has to say is true, then you become an object lesson and an illustration in your life. Your life is an illustration of why sin is sin and not an illustration of what someone who is set free in Jesus Christ can live through. Don't miss this. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, we are set free from sin for eternity. But in the passages we're going to read today, the earthly consequences are still the same for those who choose to sin when they should know better, when they've had teaching in their lives, they've had people in their lives to push them towards Jesus, and they still choose to live against him. When we do that, there are consequences of those actions. And maybe today is a big flashing light to you to let you know you need to slow your roll. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? A ship that has been wrecked requires a massive amount of structural work to get on the water again, if it ever gets on the water again. Let me say that again. A ship that has been wrecked requires a massive amount of structural work to get on the water again, if it ever gets on the water again. The picture here, by the way, does not have to do uh, with sin for eternity, but rather your effectiveness as a believer in Jesus Christ. Don't shipwreck your faith and turn into an illustration of why God calls sin sin. Be one that's a part of what he's doing uh, for the kingdom uh, forever moving forward. If you're taking notes, that begs the question today that we're going to focus on. How do those who know better end up shipwrecking their faith? How do those who know better end up shipwrecking their faith? This is a sermon specifically for believers in Jesus Christ today that we might not get hijacked by foreign ideology, that we might not get hijacked by, uh, again, an, an individualistic way of thinking and discount the truth of Scripture that is meant to shield us and protect us so that we can be as effective for God's kingdom as we could possibly be. Again, how do those who know better end up shipwrecking their faith? Ahab is a perfect story of that. Now flip over to 
1 Kings chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 31, and we're going to read a couple of really, really weird, bizarre stories that lay the path for us of what it looks like when we choose to sin, even though we know, as believers, even though we know that we should not do such a thing. Ahab would have been steeped in theology, uh, in the teachings of Yahweh from the time he was a young man. Not only that, he had an entire political system where there were also uh, uh, teachers of Yahweh, teachers of the Torah that would have been around him, pointing him towards Yahweh uh, since the time he was young. And yet he chooses to follow down this path of sin. The sermon's going to sound familiar because the story about sin is always the same. Are you ready for this? Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 20, starting in verse 31. The lead into this, remember, we've been studying about Elijah, but there's also the king in Israel, Ahab, and then a dude named Benadad from Aram, uh, again, what we would call modern-day Syria, has come in. He hates the Israelites so viciously. They've offered to pay taxes to him, pay tribute to him week to week. And in the first part of 1 Kings chapter 20, Benadad says, nope, I don't want your taxes. I want everything. I want complete control. I want to take you over. And really, he's saying, too, I want to eliminate Israel from the face of the earth. I want to destroy you. That's my main goal. Well, in dramatic fashion, the Lord shows up, miraculous fashion, and the Lord saves the Israelites and Ahab's household. Not just once, but twice, a second time. Uh, we have Benadad who rallies together troops, he rallies together leaders, he reformats a plan, and then guess what happens? He attacks Israel again, and the passage we studied last week said that the Israelites look like two little flocks of goats, and then the, uh, the, the people with the king of Aram covered the entire uh, countryside to try to destroy Israel. They were going to obliterate them. And the Lord stood up on their behalf, and they won the battle. In the midst of that, Benadad is guilty of war crimes. He's tried a genocide twice, and he is the most dangerous enemy that Israel has at this point. He deserves to be put to death for the things that he's done. And he's shown through his actions, if he gets away again, he's just going to mount forces, he's just going to build an army, and he's just going to circle the area and try to take them over one more time. He is one who, again, has a history of violence, and he wants to destroy the Jewish people. The thing to do is to hold him accountable for the sin that he's committed. But watch what takes place starting in verse 31. It says, Benadad's officials said to him, Look, we've heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful. Let's go to the king of Israel with sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads. Perhaps he will spare your life. Now, just for the record, he is not repentant here. They are trying to put on the show that they're repentant because they just want to get away with their lives so that they can mount another army and come back to kill the people of Israel, commit their genocide. Now look at verse 32. So wearing sackcloth around their waists and ropes around their heads, they went to the king of Israel and said, your servant Benadad says, please let me live. Underline your servant Benadad. The king then answered, is he still alive? He is my brother. Underline and highlight, he is my brother. What in the world is Ahab thinking? Look at what it says next. It says the men took this as a good sign and they, went, uh, they were quick to pick up his word. Yes, yes, your brother, Benadad. We said servant, but you're going to treat him like family? Yes, yes, brother Benadad. Yes, it's going to be great. Now look at what happens next. 
The men took this as a good sign and said, yes, your brother Benadad, they said. Go get him, said the king. And when Benadad came out, Ahab had him come up into his chariot, into the monarchy's motorcade. He brings him up into the chariot, and this is a dude who had tried to kill Ahab and his entire family, his people, twice. Why in the world would he tempt sin in that way? And yet we do it all the time. He looks at Ahab, looks at Benadad and goes, hey, I've been able to keep you at bay twice. I can control you. I've been able to keep you and take you down each time. God took care of me twice in my sin. I bet he'd do it a third time. Guess what? Come on up here, Benadad. When you stand next to me, I look a whole lot stronger. Come on up, Benadad. Brother Benny, come on up here. Let's do this together, but listen to me. Benadad will end up leading the army that takes Ahab's life. Why, when he knew what to do, does he invite him into the chariot? Why does he not put him before the court? If you're taking notes, write this down. Those who know better, or how do those who know better shipwreck their faith? Number one, they tolerate sin that should be gotten rid of. They tolerate sin that should be gotten rid of. In this circumstance, the right thing to do, and don't miss this, the just thing to do is to put Benadad to death for the things that he's done. But instead, it turns everything gray because Ahab decides he would like to look good next to Benadad, who even though he hates him, he is like a trophy for him. Sin sneaks in and we begin to tolerate it and it loiters around and eventually it will end up destroying us. Once One commentator wrote this because you're reading through the commentaries and a lot of it says we have no clue why he would make this turn. The only thought is pride. He thought he could control Benadad because he'd beat him twice even though it was the Lord who miraculously beat him twice. Or Benadad thought, I'll let him go free and it won't affect me. Now just for the record, sometimes you can read passages about kings and you can think about it on a societal level. I want you today to look at it at a personal level. Benadad symbolizes that wickedness that needs to be dealt with, that God desires to be dealt with in your life. And you call it brother, you treat it like it's no big deal, and then you invite it into your chariot. You invite it into a place where it is intimately connected with you. And you say to yourself, it affects me, but it doesn't really affect anybody else. The country would end up paying the price. Ahab's family would end up paying the price because of the sin he associated himself with. One of my dear mentors, a man named John Strapazon, used to say this. This isn't in your notes, but you can write it down. Strap used to say, your private sin will become your public disgrace. If you want to write that down, you can. Your private sin will become your public disgrace. Sin that you think only affects you has a spiderweb effect that you could hardly ever dream of that the enemy knows exists, but we forget about it sometimes. They tolerate sin that should be gotten rid of. If you're taking notes, write this down. To dismiss the conviction of sin that comes from the reading of God's word is a very serious matter. Let me say it again. To dismiss the conviction of sin that comes from the reading of God's word is a very serious matter. It turns into something that we just let loiter around. The loitering then leads to destruction. 
Silly example, but I hope it sticks with you. So um, before Autumn and I got married, I wasn't the cleanest of people, all right? I'm just gonna say that. I lived, lived alone, okay? I lived alone. Autumn, I got married very young, too. I was 23, barely 23 when we got married, and uh, she was barely 22. We were so young, and uh, it's crazy when you think back. We, we got married so young, and uh, I lived in a studio apartment, uh, just a small studio apartment when we got married, and uh, because it was in Oklahoma, it's on the first floor, and I hate doing dishes still to this day. If any of you like doing dishes, you can come to the house. We'd love to have you over. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, all that to say, we have a deal that Autumn and I made when we got married. I do the cooking. I'm the cook in our house. And whoever doesn't cook usually does the dishes. And so um, Autumn is the one who does the dishes around our house. I do the cooking. I get the way better end of that deal, just so you know. Uh, but that's the deal that we worked up. And uh, back in the day when it was just me, there was a time where I remember I went, hmm, I don't like doing dishes. I can tolerate the smell. Maybe I'll just let them stack up and I'll do dishes once a month. I mean, how terrible an idea was that? Maybe I'll do them once a month instead of having to do them every night. Now, that was never going to work, but in my, my collegiate mind, for some reason, it made sense. And so I remember I did the dishes, set it up, and then I decided I was going to do my month where I didn't do the dishes. And all of a sudden, they start to pile up and the smell starts out just very slowly, but becomes quite pungent very quickly, right? Now, here's the problem with being in a stink. You smell it immediately if you're new to it, but if you've lived in it long enough, you forget just how bad it stinks. It still stinks, but you forget just how bad it stinks. After the stench, as we start to have weeks go by, have weeks go by, all of a sudden it piles up higher and higher, and the look in the apartment is starting to get really bad as well. But here's what I started to think. As long as no one comes over, as long as no one sees it, I can deal, I can tolerate the mess that I'm living in. The stench, the look, I can deal with it as long as nobody sees it. The day that it finally dawned on me I should do something is first floor studio apartment. I'm sitting on my futon one day, and then all of a sudden I see some little ants begin to traipse across the floor. I now had roommates in my little studio apartment, and I realized at that point that it was time to do the dishes regularly, that that was not something that could stay, that I couldn't just tolerate it. It was not going to be good for me to have critters that were crawling across the floor in my house. I share that story to say with you, sin starts the same way. We tolerate it. We allow it to loiter around our lives. It stinks, but we think it's as long as nobody else sees it, it doesn't really affect anybody else. We can control it. We are not the first to think this way. When conviction of sin comes through the reading of God's word from the voice of the Holy Spirit, the truth is the truth, and it will be the truth. Do you want your life to be an illustration of why God's word is true? Or would you like to be God's partner in kingdom-minded fellowship to bring about what the Lord is bringing about? It begs the question, is there sin in your life that you are allowing to hang around? Is there sin in your life that you're allowing to hang around? Now flip back over to 1 Kings chapter 20, and let's look at verse 34. So here's what happens next. He invites Benadad up into his chariot. They're riding together when they had been enemies. And this is not a merciful deal because there is no real repentance that's come from Benadad. He will mount another army to try to take over Israel again. Now look at verse 34. 
It says, this is Benadad speaking, I will return the cities my father took from your father, Benadad offered. You may set up your own market areas in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. Now stop right there for just a minute. What we have here is a lowball offer from Benadad when he has completely been conquered at this point. But he's allowed to keep his life and then he offers the lowest thing possible. He goes, uh, I'll go city for city with you and uh, how about a market in Damascus? I mean, he's just throwing that off as the starting point. He's gone from servant to brother in this first conversation, and now all of a sudden he does the lowball offer. Look at what it says next. Ahab then said to him, on the basis of a treaty, I will set you free. Underline on the basis of a treaty. And I love the way the writer here does this. You've got to hear the, the angst in the voice of the writer here. So he made a treaty with him, and he let him go. Underline the reiteration here. Can I tell you why treaty is important? Not only has he called sin up, into his chariot, but he's made it legal for him to walk out of the country. He set him loose without any trial, and he said, you know what? I'm putting my stamp of affirmation and my stamp of approval on you, Benadad. Silly old cousin Benny. Silly old brother Benny. I mean, you know, you tried to conquer us twice, but God stood up for us, and really, I conquered you. I'm Ahab. I'm the king. I'm the one who deserves the credit for it. So, I'm going to turn you loose. Give us that city, city for city. Give us that deal in Damascus and you just go on there, buddy. You learned your lesson. Let's just keep moving forward. And you know what? Anybody else who might be angry at Benadad, I've written it into law that we have to let him go and let him be. His army will end up taking Ahab's life. And this is how he treated it? Don't miss this. The reason that this is in Scripture is because this is the pattern of all sin. We tolerate it around us and then all of a sudden, we affirm it with law. Now listen to me. Don't see this societal. See this personal. You decide that you will not only tolerate a sin, but you will identify your life behind the affirmation of that sin. You stand directly against God's law. If you're taking notes, write that down. You ready? How do those who know better shipwreck their faith? Number one, they tolerate sin that should be gotten rid of. And number two, they affirm sin that Scripture is clear on. Ahab lets a genocidal maniac walk free. He attaches his life and his name to the sin. It makes absolutely no sense, and yet we do it all the time in our culture, don't we? I was driving the other day through Arlington, and... Uh, I saw an old Ford Taurus. You ever seen like an old school Ford Taurus? I mean, this was like the 90s. Back in the day, that was like the most common car, was the 1990 pale blue Ford Taurus. Do you remember those days? Can anybody remember the old Ford Taurus? I think Autumn's mom even drove one, the pale blue Ford Taurus, 1990. The thing that set this one apart, in fact, by the way, Conan O'Brien, that's what he drove for years, was a pale blue Ford Taurus, for any late night fans, all right? Um, anyway, so this pale blue Ford Taurus is driving, but the reason this one stood out to me is because it was about a 1994 Taurus and it had a bumper sticker that said Bush Quail 92 on the bumper. Now if you've ever seen like a car with a thousand bumper stickers on it, this was not it. This was one lone Bush Quail bumper sticker that looked like it had been there since 1990 and here's all I could think. I'm looking at this going, what kind of person 
attaches themselves to a lost election from 1992, a lost presidential election from 1992, and never takes the time to scrape it off the bumper. I mean, maybe those bumper stickers were really, really, I mean, they clung really tight. I mean, who knows what it was? But I'm telling you, I looked at this, and it was like, it wasn't like a new car with a vintage bumper sticker on it. Again, it, that, that had clearly been there since the beginning. To put something like a bumper sticker on your life, something you affirm, something that's tied to you, to the person driving that car for almost 40 years, they attached themselves to that thing. In the gridlock of DC traffic, whoever was behind them got to read that for 40 years, for 39 years. Now say it to say it this way. For some of you, there are things in your life that you have stuck on as the bumper sticker that you've said, this is who I am. This is what I affirm. And it stands in direct contrast to what God's word tells us and your life becomes an illustration of why God's word is true. If you're taking notes, write this down. And if you don't take anything else away from today, I pray that you would take this. Are you ready? To doubt the authority of God's word on sin is to doubt the authority of God's word on salvation, forgiveness, and eternity. Let me say that again. To doubt the authority of God's word on sin is to doubt the authority of God's word on salvation, forgiveness, and eternity. All three areas that are so deeply important to us hang on the Lord's interpretation of what sin is. Remember, sin doesn't mean bad stuff. Sin means to miss the mark. What is less than God's ultimate, amazing, sovereign perfection if we come to a point where we doubt the authority of God's word on sin, then it's a very, very quick, slippery slope for us to doubt God's authority on the things that matter when we go into eternity, salvation and forgiveness. It begs the question, have you stood against Scripture in an official capacity? Now, here's what we're going to do when we get to our time of invitation in just a minute, our time of reflection. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on that one. But in this city... We get asked to go on record all the time in an official capacity. And maybe, just maybe, there's a hiccup in your spirit that you have gone on record with something that stands directly against the sovereign word of God. And you need to do something about that. You need to rectify that. Otherwise, you are on the path to deep brutal consequence that we're going to read about happens for Ahab in the days to come. Maybe that's a petition you've signed. Maybe it's an organization you've joined. Maybe it's a label to your Twitter handle. Maybe it's an ideology recognized. Maybe it's an identity that you've celebrated. Or let's be honest, maybe it's a person that you've shamed. I want you to know, by the way, I'm not talking about conservative ideology that was taught to you in the church that you grew up in. I'm talking about something that you've read in Scripture that it's very, very clear in God's Word that this is the truth, and you've stood up against it and gone, eh, it's just old-fashioned. If you get old-fashioned on what sin is, then you are immediately dismissing the power of God for forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If the Bible is true... It's true, all of it. It begs the question again, have you stood against Scripture in an official capacity? The Lord takes that very, very seriously. And we're about to see that with the end of our passage. Now flip over to 1 Kings chapter 20, verses 35 through 43. 
And here is a weird story, all right? You ready for this? This was one of those stories where I hadn't done the full research on it, and I was like, yeah, I don't know if I want to tackle this one. Maybe we'll end the series early. But we don't do that at Waterfront. We fight through, all right? Top to bottom. You ready for this? Starting in verse 35. So again, uh, he makes a treaty with Benadad, lets him go. Uh, the next time that they connect, Ahab will be dead. Look at what happens in verse 35. It says, by the word of the Lord, one of the sons of the prophets said to his companion. Now stop right there for just a minute. Underline sons of the prophets, uh, or some of you have the translation where it says one of the young prophets. Can I tell you why that distinction is given? Because the story that we're about to read was clearly inspired by God, but there's some questions questions amongst the scholars as you study this where it's like, yeah, this kid took some creative licenses with what he does in this passage. The Lord, I don't believe, called him to do this exactly this way. Um, as a son of a prophet myself, as a preacher's kid, we can get a little dramatic sometimes, all right? I, just, just the way that it goes. As one who was a young prophet, uh, we can get a little dramatic at sometimes. And that's what happens in the scripture. And the writer here is pointing out what well, the Lord was in, what's about to take place, but the way that it came about, the prophet didn't necessarily go about it the right way. So look at what happens there, and you'll be able to see what we're talking about in just a minute. By the word of the Lord, one of the sons of the prophets, a young prophet, said to his companion, strike me with one of your weapons. But the man refused. So the prophet said, because you have not obeyed the Lord, as soon as you leave me, a lion will kill you. And after that man went away, a lion found him and killed him. Super weird passage, like I was talking about. Okay, again, that preacher kid probably should have dialed it back just a little bit here. All right, now look at verse 37. The prophet found another man and said, strike me, please. I love that there's a word please there. Strike me, please. All right, would you please stab me? I really would appreciate that. Look what it says next. So the man struck him and wounded him. Then the prophet went away, or went and stood by the road waiting for the king. He disguised himself uh, with the headband over his eyes. As the king passed by, the prophet called out to him, Your servant went into the thick of battle, and someone came to me with a captive and said, Guard this man. If he is missing, it will be your life for his life, or you must repay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy here and there, the man disappeared. That is your sentence, the king of Israel said. You have pronounced it yourself. It says, Then the prophet quickly removed the headband from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets and said to the king, This is what the Lord says. You have set free a man that I determined should die. Therefore, it is your life for his life, your people for his people. And sullen and angry, the king of Israel went to his palace in Samaria. Stop right there for just a minute. On the road, what you have here is this very dramatic display of this prophet, this young prophet, having a stab wound on the side so that he can again dramatically come to the king and say, You know, I let a captive go because I just didn't, it was just going to be too much work for me to do so. I just got stabbed in the side. What do you want me to do? And then the king says to him, passing by in the motorcade, ah, your sentence is your sentence. You let him go. You got what you deserved. And all of a sudden, whoo, dramatic, right? He pulls off the headband to reveal that he is one of the prophets, one of the young prophets trying to make a name for himself. Ironically, he's not named in scripture as he tries to make a name for himself. Pulls off the blindfold and says, look, it's me. What I just told you about is exactly what you just did for the Lord. Magic, right? He does this moment, this big dramatic moment, and it says here that Ahab went away to his palace very angry and sad. Why? Because even though it was dramatic, even though he probably didn't have a lot of respect for the pastoral voice that spoke to him, the truth is still the truth. 
Ahab knew he shouldn't have tolerated Benadad. He knew that he shouldn't have signed the treaty and affirmed that he was okay to leave the country. And then in this final passage, Ahab realizes full well this decision is probably going to claim my life. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready for our last point today? How do those who know better shipwreck their faith? Number one, they tolerate sin that should be gotten rid of. Number two, they affirm sin that Scripture is clear on. And number three, they experience the consequences that God sought to shield us from. They experience the consequences that God sought to shield us from. For any of you who came in today and you're just like, man, I hadn't been to church in a long time, and now all of a sudden I'm hearing this passage on sin again, go back and listen to the tape. We don't beat you over the head with this every week, but when Scripture calls for it, the path of sin is the same. We tolerate it, we affirm and identify by it, and then we reap the consequences. Every single time we fall, our life ends up an illustration why we shouldn't do the things that God tells us we shouldn't do. It's not to limit us. It says in Scripture that Jesus says, I came that you might have life to the full, that you might have life more abundantly. If you're taking notes, one more quote here for you today. The eternal consequence of sin is nailed to the cross forevermore, but a believer that embraces sin as his brother will experience the earthly consequences just the same. Let me say it again. The eternal consequence of sin is nailed to the cross forevermore, but a believer that embraces sin as his brother will experience the earthly consequences just the same. Praise God for grace and praise God for mercy. But if you are the type of person that thinks by being under the blood of Jesus Christ that justifies my sin, we are justified in our sin through Jesus we are not justified to sin through the shed blood of Jesus. And Peter outlines that for us. Flip over to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 19 through 24. One more set of verses. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 through 24. Here's the way Peter writes it, and I think that this is beautiful. Again, this is the same Peter that had experienced Christ's forgiveness on multiple occasions Here's what Peter has to say. Verse 19, For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, look at this, because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and enduring it? Underline for doing wrong and enduring it. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving with you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Verse 24 is so powerful. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree. Why? So that we might die to the sins and live for righteousness. Underline that we might die to the sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. What Peter writes here that's so powerful is that the grace of God that was lavished upon us through the cross of Jesus Christ is what sets us free from sin for eternity. But Peter says, what good is it for you to still suffer in this world because you made poor decisions that Scripture said to avoid at all costs, that we affirm sin around us that again should be avoided at all costs. When we suffer for those things, Peter says you just get what you get. 
The heavenly consequences are still the same. But the earthly consequences are still the same as well. It's the reason if you kill somebody and then become a Christian, your eternity is set, but you still got to answer to the courts. You still got to go through trial. And they're going to want to hear more evidence than just, I did that before I was saved. There are earthly consequences to decisions that we make. When we choose to deny the power of God's word, what we've done in a sense is we have turned our lives into an illustration of why God's word is true. And Jesus said, I came that you might have life and you might have it to the full. Is there anyone here today that the Lord is trying like crazy to scream at you, let go of the sin, receive scripture as truth, and then live accordingly, not to earn salvation, you can't do that, but to be the most effective Christ follower that you could possibly be, to be and live as a disciple following the example of Jesus. It begs the question today, our final question, should you just listen to God's word Should you just listen to God's word? Or have you made your entire life about proving that scripture is wrong in one way or another? If you really think about it, we're in a city of compromise in good ways. We got to figure out how to hold a massive nation of hundreds of millions of people together. Compromise is the way that you run a country. When it comes to eternity, it is what it is. It is what it is. Either you believe it or you don't. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he'll save your soul. But you will spend your life as an illustration of God's grace and not as a member of his team bringing about his kingdom. I love you guys. Thanks for listening today.